Welcome to the Global Connection, a Tel Aviv University podcast. Journey with us as we discover how TAU's academic community and friends are engaging with and helping to shape this ever-changing world. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Global Connection podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anna Sajeki. And today I have with me uh, Professor, Assistant Professor Nadav Cohen, um, who is with the computer science with computer science at Tel Aviv University, where he is the director of the Deep Learning Lab. And his research focuses on artificial intelligence and specifically the theoretical and algorithmic foundations of deep learning. At the same time, he is also the chief scientist and co-founder of Imubit, which offers an AI process optimization solution used by global energy and chemical companies. So welcome. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Um, admittedly, I think I understood about three quarters of the introduction <laughs> I gave. Yeah. So I might actually begin by getting you to talk a little bit about your research um, and maybe pretend I'm a five-year-old, okay. if you can. Okay, sure. So AI, I guess, um, these days needs no introduction in terms of its uh, importance and uh, impact. And this technology, I believe somewhat differently from previous technological um, revolutions, is some would say more of an art than a science in terms of how it's developed and applied. Uh, it's based a lot on trial and error, intuition, conventional wisdom, uh, you hear what other people tried and what other people do, and that's the way that things progress and products are developed. And we don't really have uh, the scientific foundations for understanding what makes one method better than the other, um, why these algorithms work the way they do. And this is a, a gap that many believe, including myself, that it's important to, to try and close it. Because um, aside from scientific curiosity, technologies that we understand better uh, tend to be more reliable and safer. Um, and it's becoming a really pressing issue as the technology progresses and the risk um, start mounting. Mm -hmm. So develop, my research is around developing a mathematical understanding behind the technology Okay. And as a result, uh, enabling new capabilities, mm -hmm. hopefully with some principles and guarantees behind them. And I would love to, um, and I, I think we'll get into a bit more of a conversation on this in a moment, but it does really feel like things are moving very, very quickly in the AI world. Um, so the work that you're doing is very, very important. And I imagine a little bit difficult right now to be developing this mathematical understanding, while at the same time, things are moving so quickly. Yeah. Um, do you find that you're in a, a sort of global community of people working on something similar right now, or is it really you and a few other individuals out there? So it's a very good question, very good point. So first of all, I'm not alone in this. There are um, There is a community trying to develop foundations behind the technology, behind deep learning. Um, maybe a few hundreds around the world, maybe a little bit more, but nothing compared to the amount of people that work on the applied sides of the technology. Okay. And it is moving very, very quickly. And, and it's one of the challenges of the field to try and distill the important 
factors and aspects for study and not be distracted by the latest and greatest tools that improve things by a little bit. Um, but it is important. And there are domain application domains where the technology is um, not really kind of entering because it's not well understood because of the risks, right? We as a society are not yet willing, and maybe we will never be, uh, to let an algorithm make decisions that can impact human lives or even kind of cause loss of lives, God forbid. Um, we don't feel comfortable deploying such technologies when we don't understand them. On the other hand, when there are technologies that we do understand, then, then we do apply them in scenarios that can risk human lives. For example, transportation, right? People fly and ride trains, even though these things could be very dangerous. And we take comfort in our understanding of the technology and ability to predict um, how it will behave. Okay. Now, when you read the news today about AI, uh, oftentimes it's companies being mentioned, OpenAI, with ChatGBT, Microsoft, Google. Um, so for you as a researcher at a university, um, doing this type of research, do you find that you often are working with companies and people in private institutions, or are you sort of working in an academic framework? Um, can you explain that a bit? Yeah. So in my area, there is um, a very strong collaboration between academia and industry. Uh, there is interest in my line of research within industry. For example, Google and other companies uh, support my research, uh, and I do have um, various channels of interaction with them. Uh, so... That's kind of uh, the initial answer. On top of that, I can say that my feeling is that in very, very recent times, maybe the last few months, things are starting to shift a little bit in terms of the dynamics between industry and academia in machine learning and AI. And I'm not sure um, this interface will be as it was. Okay. Okay. And um, maybe we'll unpack that a little bit. Um, so from my understanding as just someone who isn't an expert, but I'm interested in the field and doing a little bit of reading, you know, the big conversation really began with ChatGBT being introduced by OpenAI. It's a um, natural language pro processing model um, that people are using all around the world right now. And from there, it's sort of this conversation about how these technologies are developing really, really quickly. Um, and there has been um, some conversations about maybe we need a six-month hiatus right now to think about the implications of this technology as it gets developed. Um, so is this part of the conversation as we're sort of at this moment thinking we need a pause, we need to be thinking about how we're going to go about it productively and it, um, does that partly have an impact on academia and the work that you do in academia? Yeah. Okay. So it's a very important topic that uh, you're touching right now. So I would maybe separate the answer to two. First of all, in terms of the um, kind of uh, pause in research, I think most of the researchers in the field do not support it primarily because if we take it on ourselves, there might be other countries that will not do so or probably will not do so. 
And that means that it's the technology is still going to progress. It's just going to be others that take the lead. So, so that's one thing. However, there is very significant concern around this technology. Now, it didn't start with ChatGPT. Maybe for the kind of public, this is um, a turning point where AI really, everybody knows what AI is and everybody knows that they're using it, but they've actually been using it for a long time now. So within the community, these things existed for a long time. ChatGPT, I think, reached a level of performance that surprised even experts. Now, it's not necessarily that the all of the ideas applied there were unknown in the past. Actually, most of them, if not all, were. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a matter of taking existing ideas to a scale that's unprecedented in terms of compute and, and data and things like that. Uh, but, but it did surprise experts. And now, in terms of the risks, I believe that alongside the amazing opportunities that the technology possesses, uh, it also uh, entails risks. And some of them are, you could say, familiar mm-hmm. from past technological breakthroughs, and others are less so. Mm-hmm. And these that are less so are the ones that concern uh, more, probably, because it's unfamiliar okay. to us. Now, in terms of the impact on my research, there isn't a lot of impact on the research that's geared towards understanding and building foundations. Um at this point, there isn't a lot of impact on research, on, on any type of AI research, I think, but but I believe it may change. Okay. Okay. You know, um, when you mentioned looking back in, in with uh, certain circumstances to historical technological innovations to sort of see how those developed, and, and so we can read certain things into that while also having this entirely new element um, it's funny, as I've been thinking about AI, I, um, for some reason, my mind went to The Wizard of Oz, the movie, mm-hmm. um, which was made at a time um, when there were huge technological advancements being made. Um, but there's that final scene where, you know, there's a wizard and they think he's got all this power and he's created this amazing universe and they pull back the scene or they pull back the curtain and there's just an individual there. Mm-hmm. Um, with the curtain or behind the curtain with the computer. Um, so how much, you know, it, it feels a bit overwhelming, all these conversations happening and how much of it is really, we can actually still pull, pull back the curtain and there's just people there working on this really interesting technology. Yeah. Um, so I would argue that even if it is people, it does not, um, alleviate the potential risks. Mm-hmm. And l- let me kind of try and explain what I mean. So every technological revolution um, impacts the economy and makes some jobs less relevant and creates new ones. So that's a type of risk that um, I guess you could say that we've seen various times and we're used to it. Um, another type of risk is a powerful weapon at the hands of small groups of people. Like even if it is an individual that's operating a very powerful weapon, it's still um, concerning, mm-hmm. right? We've had, you know, nuclear weapons. It's not one person, but it's one plane 
mm-hmm. dropping. It could drop mm-hmm. a bomb that causes immense damage. Nobody cares, or many people do not view the fact that it dropped from single plane as less concerning. In fact, it's maybe even more concerning. Mm-hmm. So even if we see that it's one person causing so much damage, that means that two people could cause double the damage and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that's... Um, I guess, the way that I view it and many colleagues that I talk to as well. And there's an even more frightening possibility, I think, and that is that even that single person could lose control over um, over the technology. Now, I'm not saying that, this, uh, that the world's going to end tomorrow, but you could be at a point, especially since we don't have um, the profound understanding of the technology and we don't um, kind of... Um, applied in a way that is contained and that we have clear control over, you could imagine a situation where this kind of um, behaves like a wildfire. And even the person that ignited it can, can't stop it. Okay. Uh, you've brought up some great examples of risks in terms of comparisons, um, but can you talk a little bit about what type of risks um, could be on the horizon? Okay, so I find it difficult to believe that mankind will become extinct in one day without any prior signs. Right now, this technology is living inside the virtual world, and there is um, a pretty clear separation between the virtual and physical world. The physical technologies evolved much less than people anticipated in the past, Maybe if you watch Back to the Future in 1985, they predicted how 2015 is going to look like. We're not exactly there yet mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, flying vehicles. The and hoverboards. Exactly. They're, they're working on it. Yeah. yeah. So we're not there yet. And people thought that we colonized the moon and things like that. And we haven't. We've evolved much more virtually. So there is a pretty clear separation. And I know this firsthand because of the company that runs on manufacturing plants and it's not that from the internet, things just kind of uh, propagate into physical plants. So I believe that the realization of risks will begin within the virtual world. Um, and we will have an opportunity to respond. We, I meaning mankind or the Western world, our allies, we will have an opportunity to respond. An example could be of a scenario. Uh, it could be some kind of, you could say, uh, cyber attack. But that just is running wild like a fire, and nobody can really stop it without pulling the plug. And now we can, and and it writes code and kind of adapts itself, and it evolves, and we can theoretically pull the plug. Um, It's very costly. And I think there we will be at a point where action will need to be taken, uh, by governments. We've seen fairly recently that governments can act quickly under extreme situations like in COVID. Mm-hmm. Who would have thought that a lockdown would happen in a, in a you know, mm-hmm. Western mm-hmm. first world uh, country? So it can, we, we will, I believe there will be a response. And there's a trade-off between how effective it is and how non-disruptive it is. If we are willing to go all the way, we can dismantle the risk. We just turn off the internet everything. But we don't want to do this. The price is kind of unbearable in terms of the economy. So the question of where we're going to be on that spectrum, I believe that 
something is going to happen at some point. We will respond in a way that is effective uh, and at the same time disruptive. And I'm hopeful that as we go along and progress and develop more methods to cope with these risks, we'll be able to gradually go back to uh, a situation where our lives are not impacted that much, and yet we are protected. Okay. Now, you mentioned countries can react pretty quickly to, um, I don't want to call it a black swan event because it's not quite that, but um, the unknown, when the unknown develops. And I know the European Union recently came out with um some draft legislation in terms of the regulation of AI and AI developments. Um, I, from my understanding, it's still very much draft. It's probably something that's going to evolve probably quite quickly too as the technology evolves. Yeah. For you, what, what are some guardrails? What are some regulations that you think would be helpful? Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, my guess is that these regulations will move too slow until something bad happens and then there will be drastic moves. And just want to clarify, when I say that I believe something bad will happen, it does not mean that we will become extinct, right? Right. It could right. be some cyber attack of a scale that we, that we, we've never seen. Um, so, uh, so that's, uh, could you repeat the question? I kind of lost uh, the regulations you think would be yeah. helpful. So I think that they're uh, it's moving a little bit uh, too slow. What I would like to see, or I believe that at some point will happen, is that the compute power will be regarded as substance that can potentially lead to unconventional kind of weapons. Okay, just like chemical materials sometimes, even if they're benign on their own, they can be used to create different kind of bombs and things like that, and they're regulated. Mm -hmm. So I think that this kind of regulation will be needed. Okay. Uh, above a certain amount of compute, you're going to need a license. This is actually something that I believe is feasible because the market for hardware for compute uh, is pretty concentrated. Uh, there's this small number of companies that generate the hardware that most of the deep learning and AI compute run on, especially there's one big company, um, NVIDIA, mm -hmm. and it is an American company. So I believe that that will be effective. That's a very important component. They're licensing, there will be required to go through audits and things like that. But we have little control over what goes on in other countries. I'm hopeful that there will be uh, collaboration, mm -hmm. just like there was around nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Um but on its own, these things will be, I believe, um, it'll be hard for them to provide kind of a 100% coverage because there will be organizations that do not abide by regulations and law. Okay. Okay. Apart from a crisis happening, um, let's look into the future about 10 years from now um, and, and say the technology has developed in fairly productive ways. How, what sort of society do you imagine we'll be living in 10 years from now? That's a very good question. So I think there's, so one, one open question is whether this 
kind of artificial intelligence is going to hit a wall and at some point we'll realize that it doesn't go all the way. Mm -hmm. So we know that it can do things it couldn't do a few years ago and it can do things that surprised even experts. But um, at its current state, it still has difficulties creatively um, kind of... um, creatively crafting new thoughts and ideas. It mostly kind of, and it, and it feels that way. If you ask it very deep questions and it feels like it's kind of um, reproducing things that it saw. Mm-hmm. So there's a question of whether we're going to realize that this extra mile is actually a big wall that we're far from kind of um, overcoming. Mm-hmm. Or if it's going to go all the way in this thing the next version is going to be better and the next one's going to be better and it's just going to be super intelligent so if it's the former then i think we're going to be at a point where we have far better tools than we did before we could do a lot more it's going to increase our productivity um but it will um the the impact on our lives will be much lesser than if it's the latter okay if it's the latter then it's very hard to predict Mm-hmm. I wouldn't really want to make a bet on where we're going to be because if it's super intelligence, then it could just any idea, any thought this will be able to do, um, this will be able to do for us. Right. Um, and it might be kind of an obvious statement, but right now I feel like what's being produced in terms of knowledge is still very much a human knowledge and logic because it's taking information from the internet, from sources of information that humans have created. Mm-hmm. Um, what does a superintelligence even look like? Like for me, it's hard to comprehend. Is that a human superintelligence? Does it completely go in a, you know, a beyond human logic? Um, yeah. Do you think about that often? Yeah. Um, so first of all, even today, It's not that it does not generate any new content and it only takes things from the web because the amount of possibilities of things that it can be asked is infinite, much larger than the internet, and yet responds in a way that makes sense. So it is able to combine pieces of information and come up with thoughts. It is able to do that. Mm -hmm. It's still arguably not able to generate profoundly new ideas that come out uh, out of nowhere. So, um, yeah, could you repeat the, I'm kind of losing, yeah, I'm, I'm going I, astray. I, know just, that I could talk I, about this stuff complex, for hours. It's a complex topic, but, yeah. um, what, what does that super intelligence yeah, possibly so, look like? Well, you know, in the past people were making calculations manually and then a calculator came in and it could do it much, much better than us. So there are various things that we'll be able to do much better than us. And it happens today. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is, I think, new here is that it could actually do the things that we thought are unique to us. It can do them as well. So you could say that a super intelligence maybe would be something that's capable of doing anything we can, plus much more, mm-hmm. and do it much, much faster, um, much higher bandwidth, far greater data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, for you, uh, given your research is on the the mathematical patterns and foundations, um, what are what are some of the 
what are some of the patterns that you've picked up on? Yeah, that's a good question. So I don't know if I, I, I normally don't think about it as pattern. Okay. It's a matter of, um, the first phase in understanding a technology, I think, or a phenomenon is understanding what questions to ask. Oftentimes it's even more important than understand than, than, you know, developing answers. So for the most basic type of AI, it's called supervised learning. It basically means receiving examples, okay, of an input and an output that you would like your system to produce. So for example, my system needs to recognize the content of images. So I feed it examples of images and what the content really is. And then it's supposed to learn how to do that, do it uh, by itself. So that's called supervised learning. Uh, and in that setting, which is the most basic and still the most common, I think we've reached a point uh, where we understand what the important questions are and we have answers to them, at least in simplified settings. Um, and basically, like really in high level, the questions are what kind of relationships can the model that you are training, what kind of relationships is it even able to describe? Mm -hmm. That's one question. Uh, another question is how can you take that model and adapt it to the data that you saw? And a third question is if you have taken that model and adapted to the data that you saw, how well is it going to behave? How accurate is it going to be on data that it hasn't seen? So these are kind of three separate questions. Each of them has a different name and theories around it. Um, and kind of my research was around these three questions and developing uh, answers, solving different simplified settings. And then oftentimes empirically, after you've gained some understanding of a simplified setting, then empirically you evaluate it on more complicated settings and kind of demonstrate your conclusions. Okay. Things like that. Okay. And how often do you find it's predictable? And how often is there kind of a surprise that comes up as you're doing these evaluations? Mm, so it's a question, if, if, are you asking about the surprise coming up from the theory or from the experiments? I, I You know what? I'm going to turn that back on you. What would you prefer yeah. to? So let me answer maybe a bit of a different question. Okay. Um, there is a lot of trial and error. Okay. Um, in, in the technology in general. And uh, you could say that this is a surprise because you try things and then you kind of develop your intuition, but you don't really have the ability to predict in advance uh, what's going to happen. So there's a lot of um, trial and error. And maybe 10 years ago, I had this kind of secret hope that theoretical understanding is going to replace all of that. We won't have that at all. So today I'm kind of a little less optimistic or more realistic. I don't think that this practice of trial and error, trying things out, I don't think it's going to go away. Mm -hmm. But the, still, the amount of things that you can try is basically infinite. So even if you and a million other people around the globe are trying things, you can only try a small subset of all mm -hmm. possibilities. Mm -hmm. So the theory, I think that the importance of the theory is mostly in around, around shaping your view and perception of the technology, making you think of possibilities that you didn't even consider uh, before. So in that sense, sometimes it leads to unexpected outcomes. I can think of a few 
examples where it led eventually led to methods that did not seem to make any sense uh, before, so people didn't really try them. Um, so, so it does happen. Mm-hmm. It, we're still at a point where the vast majority of progress is based on trial and error, intuition, and kind of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know one of the conversations happening right now is about uh, there's a little bit of fear mongering about the accuracy of um, you know when someone like me is using it, and I I say can you tell me about this event and what happened? And um, chat GBT specifically, like oftentimes the information will be correct. Sometimes there's an error and it can't quite recognize itself when there's an error. Um, So how careful do we have to be with using these technologies in terms of um, double checking and making sure information is factually correct? Yeah. So... When using chat GPT, I would treat it like a person. Okay. Like you treat a person. Okay. So, which is not the world's number one authority on the topic of under discussion. So I think it's very good for things that you can easily verify. Okay. Uh, I would not count on it blindly. I think that without a more concrete kind of foundations, it'll be hard to get any guarantees on accuracy of these uh, statistical models. It is possible to kind of wrap them up with additional layers of software where um, you're kind of, um, their results only come with references and links and things like that, like like happens in, in Bing, so Microsoft's uh, surf, um, search engine. So that's something that's more reliable. Okay, okay. And uh, the type of research you're doing right now, what would you like to be doing in 10 years from now? Do you think about that? So I obviously do. Um, I was drawn to this field of artificial intelligence because I kind of really liked the combination between math and theory on one hand and kind of actual well, systems on the other. And it is something that I definitely see myself um, continuing in for my entire uh, career. Um, I think that there is a lot to uncover. And I believe that at some point, the proliferation of the technology will be um, kind of... um, prevented or, or slowed down by us because we don't have sufficient understanding. So I do think, despite the amazing progress that we've seen, um, that the foundations are super critical uh, for, improving, for improving our lives and for solving various types of problems, especially in the physical world. A lot of our problems are in the physical world. Mm-hmm. For example, climate change and in medicine, cancer, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that in order to harness this technology to help address these problems, we're going to need foundations. And uh, I'm hoping to contribute there. Okay. Well, and, you know, we've been talking about the risk a fair bit, but um, you bring us back to the fact that there are some really, really exciting opportunities in terms of the integration of AI um, to help us with some of these global problems we're facing. Um, 
So yeah, hopefully, hopefully climate change, hopefully cancer, um, hopefully we will be able to see some progress in those areas. I, I do want to say that if you take autonomous driving, for example, uh, I think there are lessons to be learned from what happened there. Um, because we're, I guess it's a controversial statement, but I believe that from a technological standpoint, we've reached a point where at least in some conditions, these systems, autonomous driving systems are safer than, than people. Uh, however, we are not willing to accept the idea of an algorithm, um, taking human lives. Whereas if it's a person, then it's okay. So, and, and even if it's 10 times safer, so we'd have 10 times less car accident, fatal car accidents, still these 10 times less would be caused by an algorithm. Mm -hmm. And we're not willing to accept it. And it's really blocking mm -hmm. progress. Mm -hmm. So society um, has a kind of critical role in enabling these contributions. Um, so I don't think that, uh, I think we're a little bit over-optimistic Okay. Today, in terms of, you know, AI is just going to solve climate change, going to cure right. cancer and everything. Right. Without right. running experiments on people, it's going to be hard to do these things on people or on, on physical systems. It's going to be hard to do these things. And we're, and we're not going to um, so easily allow these kind of algorithms that we don't understand to just do trial and error. Okay. In these okay. Scenarios. And maybe that's not a bad thing. I don't know. I'm not really sure. But uh, what I am sure of is that I'm really glad that you joined me today um, to have this conversation. Uh, there's still so much to unpack and learn. And uh, it's wonderful to to talk to you and, and get to learn a little bit more about the things we we should be thinking about right now. So thanks a lot. Thanks thank for you. having me. Thank you, Nadav. Thank you. Welcome to the Global Connection, a Tel Aviv University podcast. Journey with us as we discover how TAU's academic community and friends are engaging with and helping to shape this ever-changing world.